Nothing. It's not. He's not in the story. Okay. <laughs> let's let's cut that. <laughs> that that's not rewarding for anyone. <laughs> Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast. I'm Todd Mack here with Joseph Dorowski, and each week we look at a great character and a great story. Today we're talking about C. Auguste Dupin in Murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe. The short story was first published in 1841. This short story is widely considered to be the first detective story that was ever published, and Poe is also credited with being one of the very earliest uh, science fiction writers. So he had a hand in a couple, uh, the development of a couple different genres. Bless your heart, Edgar Allan Poe. (laughs) Your tortured, (laughs) tortured uh, heart. Well, he he was one of the... Telltale heart. Bless your telltale heart. He was uh, one of the first writers to try and just make a go of it just through writing. And turns out that was a little hard at the time. (laughs) (laughs) even if you're later on after your death respected for your innovations and your great great impact on world literature and american literature during your lifetime it turns out you might not be as respected as one would hope oh poor guy did you know that edgar Allan poe had a mortal enemy an arch nemesis was his name moriarty no but it is a great arch nemesis nemesis name it was rufus wilmot griswold griswold Sounds like a Harry Potter name. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, listeners, you may have uh, a conception of Poe as this kind of proto-emo, <laughs> drug-addled, drug, <laughs> drug addled, uh, obsessed with macabre, uh, you know, just depressive, manic-depressive, uh, drunkard, and all these other things. Uh, some of which maybe is true, but a lot of that <laughs> comes from the fact that after Poe's very mysterious death, which has never been explained to this day, uh, his arch nemesis, Rufus Griswold, wrote his obituary and then became somehow the executor of his <laughs> estate and just <laughs> slandered Poe <laughs> for the Aww. rest of his life and included uh, like a biography that uh, like a lot of the idea of Poe as being uh, a drug user and other things came from this biography, and Griswold included letters that were supposed to be revealing that this was true. It's been learned later on that Griswold forged those letters in order to ruin Poe's name. Oh, Griswold. <laughs> like the, uh, I should go look it up, but his, his obituary for Poe started with something along the lines of Edgar Allan Poe was uh, uh, an American literary writer, died yesterday. Few will miss him. <laughs> something along those lines. Oh man, and the uh, I love the origins of this feud. Uh, Griswold was putting together a collection of American poetry, and he but Poe at this time, besides being a writer, was also a critic, and he 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 wrote uh, for newspapers and magazines. He was a literary critic, and Griswold invited Poe to contribute to this collection in the hopes or the expectations. It seems like a, maybe a wink, nudge, nudge that Poe would then write a very positive review of this. <laughs> Essay, or this poetry collection. And then when Poe got the poetry collection, his uh, poetry was at the back, and he just slammed all the writers that were included in front of him. Oh. <laughs> and said this was not a good collection of American poetry. Oh. And thus was born a feud that went on after Poe's death. Wow. Rufus That's Griswold. Amazing. Rufus Griswold. 
Uh, so are you saying that uh, that Poe was not a drug-addled, emo, tortured soul, or that he was more than uh, he, a well, drug he, he was definitely more. The drugs, I think most Poe biographers say there's no evidence that he ever used drugs. Really? Yeah. Uh, alcohol? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you win some, you lose some, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, and, um, some of it, I mean, he's so famous for his macabre writing, his gothic stuff, but he wrote some fairly humorous, um, you know, it, things that show that he had a, quite a bit more wit than we generally give him credit for and a sense of humor that he's rarely credited with. So I think... There was probably a lot more to him than the popular culture version of him, which, again, was largely born out of Griswold's smear campaign. Mm-hmm. Cool. So uh, when was the first time you read Murders in the Rue Morgue? I don't know. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Did you remember, remember my... Like bedtime stories when you were a kid? <laughs> I'm pretty sure my mom had me memorize The Raven when I was a child. <laughs> <laughs> This is why I love. That's why I love you and your family so much. I, I'm not 100 percent sure on that. I should ask her. It's a vague memory of us all reciting. The I I know our mother at some point in her life had significant portions of the Raven memorized. Yeah. Um, I don't know that she suggested it to us, but I have a few stanzas. Yeah. I think she may have been working with us. As a Poe, I, I I just kind of always. I don't remember not knowing about Poe. I'm sure there must have been, you know, four, five, six years old. I doubt I was reading Telltale Heart. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I think I did read some to my six-year-old. Not of Telltale Heart. (laughs) I did read some Raven to her. (laughs) My story contrasts nicely with yours. I remember distinctly uh, coming to Poe, coming to know Poe. Uh, my first memory was when my brother was in junior high or high school, and he had to read um, uh, Fall of the House of Usher. And so, so, so he good. rented the movie from the library, and I watched it with him. And it is, to this so, day, one of the most terrifying things I have ever, like, encountered. <laughs> Potential, te- me. potential teaser for future episode. Yeah. Might something from that be up here on a Mount Rushmore of fear that you had? <laughs> I, I'm working on my on my list for that, but uh, it's definitely a candidate. It was terrifying. The thought that this this image of the woman in the coffin uh, scratching at the at the lid. Yeah, that, that, that's a mental image that'll linger. In a child's in a child's mind, yeah, absolutely. Um, the other th- the other introduction, the first time that I um, that I came across Poe in school was uh, in my English class. In and I want to say this was in seventh grade. So it could have uh, been our English class. Yeah, but I think you would remember this. So I'm going to tell this story, and then you tell me if you have any memory of this. But uh, maybe I was in this class while you were visiting the Rain Man. <laughs> <laughs> So it's seventh grade. It's my first year of public school, um, and I'm in my English class. And my teacher shuts down all the lights and puts this some kind of glowing crystal ball in the middle. I I seem to remember candles, although it seems highly unlikely that there were open flames in the Lake Ridge Junior High. Uh, but it was way creepy. 
and we all I think we I think we gathered around in a circle around the ball. See, I don't know how much of this is fabricated <laughs> and how much is real, but this is the memory that I have. And we all held hands and then she turned on a tape recording of some creepy, creepy voice reading the Telltale can I, Heart. Can I guess it was Vincent Price? <laughs> ben, I don't know, but it was terrifying. And I got home and I told my mother and she was beside herself. <laughs> she was so mad that we had done that. There is a fantastic animated film version of Vincent Price reading the Telltale Heart with this avant-garde animation going on. So I'm wondering if it was that audio. Uh, I love it, that. It may be. I'm checking the recesses of my mind. I'll uh, I'll go ahead and. It's on your DVD of Hellboy Two, because Vincent Guillermo del Toro cites it as one of his influences. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, if I had a DVD of Hellboy Two, then it would be on there. <laughs> so uh, I will give a short synopsis of Murders in the Room Morgue. As mentioned earlier, this is considered the first detective story. Bless your heart, Edgar Allan Poe, for giving us the detective genre. Um, let's just say there's a lot to be owed to Poe when we talk about the detective genre. And this, and this story. Movie. Yeah. I mean, there's me, so much here. Our producer, Andrew, has a comment. I did a, like a tiny bit of research, and I couldn't find actually the information I wanted. But I was just thinking like something contemporary that there's a lot of that owes pretty much everything to Poe in this story, police procedurals. Every, every police yeah. procedural. Every single one of them, because they they fit into, there's always a detective story yeah. in them. Yep. And there are listed under that category in Wikipedia, no fewer than 191 television police procedurals. <laughs> every one of them <laughs> traces its genealogy to and this I, story. I, I don't think that list is exhaustive. Yeah. I mean, I think we often credit, Sherlock Holmes, but as we do the summary, just think Sherlock Holmes <laughs> as, as we talk about uh, Murders in the Room Org. So very briefly, Murders in the Room Org is the story of, um, it's narrated by an unnamed narrator who lives with this super genius, uh, eccentric um, person who uh, considers himself to be highly intelligent and uh, observant and... But doesn't uh, quite fit in with the rest of society. Does not right? fit in with the rest of society, <laughs> so they live alone together in a giant mansion, and, the, and they only come out at night. <laughs> it's kind of weird. I, I watched this TV show on the BBC. <laughs> well, I have not seen this on the BBC. I would love to, though. He was talking about Sherlock, I believe. Oh. <laughs> um, and uh, so there is a murder, and everyone is stumped, except for Dupin, the uh, the detective slash I mean he's sort of an amateur but not an amateur. <laughs> I, I, he offers his services to consult for the police department. <laughs> yes, so he would be a, a police consultant. Yes, uh, and uh, and this is the story of how he solves this uh, in unsolvable murder. And if that sounds interesting, this one is old enough to be in public domain. So we have a link directly to this short story in our show notes, but you can also find it in any collection of Poe short stories. It's a good one. Go read it. It will take you maybe an hour. Before you go read it, please give us a review. We have stalled out at a uh, certain number that we would like to see exceeded. (laughs) 
in our iTunes reviews. And uh, you can also help us out by supporting us on patreon.com slash protagonist. So we would appreciate that. Now we're going to go into the full spoiler synopsis. Before we do that, I want to say one thing about Patreon. We are setting a new Patreon goal. Uh, We need $5 a month. Uh, and this is why we need $5 a month. We want to push the little button in Facebook that says boost this post and be able to push our uh, announcements of our podcast out to a wider audience. It costs us $5 a month. So if you could find it in the goodness of your heart to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and give us a, a buck uh, per month, only five people need to do that. And we will be able to increase our audience and that will be awesome. Thank you. Okay, full spoiler synopsis. There's an unnamed narrator who is uh, ready to be removed from society for a little while, so he rents a room in a secluded home owned by... Oh, boy. Here, listeners, just know you're going to hear some of my French pronunciations, and <laughs> this is going to be an adventure for all of us. <laughs> but, do you just um, want to, like, stop, and then I'll say the name? No, no, I'm going to power through this. <laughs> All right. Uh, It is a secluded home owned by C. Auguste Dupin. Uh, They read a newspaper account of a terrible double murder in which Madame La... La, Oh, dear. Uh, Madame La... Do you want to give that a shot? Continue. Oh, no. Can you give that name a shot? Well, I'm not entirely certain that you have spelled the name correctly in this document, but I think it's Espanaye. Okay, Madame Aspanye. <laughs> uh, okay, so there's a double murder. Madame Aspanye and her daughter were killed in their locked apartment. The witnesses, who heard screaming in a mysterious male voice, were delayed by a locked door from the inside. Uh, when they forced their way in, though, they found the mother was nearly decapitated, and the daughter's body was stuffed up of a uh, stuffed up a chimney, and there was no one else in the apartment. Wasn't the mother thrown out a window? Uh, wasn't she thrown into another room? Uh, another room in the apartment, I thought. Continue. Okay. Dupin. Uh, was that right? Dupin? Yeah. Okay. Intrigued by the case and sensing that the police have no chance of solving it, offers his services as a sort of consulting detective. Dupin has a, quote, peculiar analytic ability, uh, and he pieces together the facts that none of the witnesses... Uh, so these are the facts that he uses. None of the witnesses could identify the language of the male voice. It would have been impossible for a human to have escaped through a window, and a hair that he locates at the crime scene appears more animal than human, and he concludes that, dun-dun-dun, and... Orang Utang was the murderer. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, it's written, uh, it's a regatane, you know, but it's written O-U-R-A-N-G hyphen O-U-T-A-N-G. That's how it's written in the story. In order to prove that his deduction is correct before he goes to the police, he places an ad in the newspaper announcing that he has caught an Orang Utang and is seeking its proper owner. A sailor answers the ad, naturally. <laughs> He's seeking his lost animal. <laughs> Dupin confronts the sailor with his theory that the Orang Utang committed the murders on the Rue Morgue, and the sailor shares his side of the story. He captured uh, the orangutan in Borneo, and he, he planned to sell it. Uh, the caged animal saw little, little every day except for the sailor's morning routine of shaving. <laughs> One day it escaped, and it grabbed the sailor's razor, and it ran through the streets of Paris. It scaled the side of a building where the victims lived, and upon entering the apartment, he attempted to shave the mother in imitation of the sailor's morning ablutions. Oh <laughs> Unfortunately, it was not a very good 
very good barber. And it almost cut her off her head. In the ensuing panic and screaming, the orangutan choked the daughter to death in order to silence her screams. The sailor, who had been chasing his escaped animal, was lashing his whip outside of the window. The whip had been used to punish the orangutan. And fearing the sound, uh, the orangutan... Uh, stuffed the daughter's body up the chimney so the owner, his owner wouldn't see it and punish him with the whip. The orangutan then escaped through the window and the sailor ran off into the night. In a quick summary at the end, it is revealed that the sailor eventually caught the orangutan and sold it to a zoo. The end. <laughs> <laughs> our, uh, our producer, Andrew, has not read this story before. And really? From the look on his face, I think he might have a comment or two <laughs> to, <laughs> to share. <laughs> This terrifying. <laughs> Fantastic. No, you did not read the descriptions of these uh, bodies. Oh, yeah. Poe. I'm earned, frightened by this. Poe earned his reputation for the macabre and his descriptions of the decapitated mother. Well, nearly decapitated. And the and the daughter stuffed up the chimney. Yeah. Ugh. It's every bit as um, horrifying as any opening scene of... Police procedural castle, NCIS castle. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there is something about seeing that dead body that I would like to talk about at some point. Well, and but it's, uh, it's ridiculously compelling to listen to that story. Like, I was so confused about what was going on, and then he's like, "It's an orangutan." <laughs> what? Uh, I will say that um, this is considered the first detective story. And some people complain about it because they say that part of detective fiction is the unspoken contract between an author and the reader that the reader should be able to solve the mystery because the author presents enough clues. And they say the orangutan comes out of left field. (laughs) And and no reader is going to go in that direction with the evidence that's presented up to that point in the story. See, I agree. I disagree with that. I would say that the difference. So, I mean, what other option is there if it isn't detective fiction? Oh, I think it is detective fiction, and I think it's just, it's so early that that unspoken contract didn't yet exist. <laughs> See, but I don't know. I, I don't know if I buy into that whole, the unspoken contract thing, because I, I'm happy to accept uh, a, a story as legitimate detective fiction, as long as, in the end, it makes sense. Which is why I would differentiate, like, detective fiction from noir fiction, because noir fiction, in the end, it still doesn't make sense. And a noir you, you, author, they, they don't they don't explain everything. Well, and even if they do, it it doesn't make sense. Like you put all the all the pieces of the puzzle back together, and you go, no, it still doesn't make sense. <laughs> and and noir authors are famous for saying, in the end, they're like, I don't know who the killer was, and that's not the point. The point is mood and atmosphere and angst and and it's they they deal with a different set of issues. Detective fiction deals with here's this impossible looking situation and I will show you how it's done, whether or not all of those clues show up uh, for the reader to see during the course of the of the story for me is inconsequential. But, Todd I, I think what you're saying about noir fiction is perfectly encapsulated in a story about I think it's the Big Sleep starring Humphrey Bogart. Yes. And Howard Howard Hawks directed that one. Uh-huh. Yep. And at some point some of the actors were asking the director, so who did kill the guy? <laughs> like, you know, at the beginning there's a murder and yep. it's all about finding out who committed the murder. And it's it's big and convoluted and everything. And he's like, I don't I don't know. I don't know. It you know, matter. so 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 there's just a scene where, you know, someone is killed and then he asked the author of the novel that it was based right. on. And you go, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It just, it just doesn't matter. But in this story, it absolutely matters. 
And, and so, and it is it, whether we see all of the pieces of the puzzle being put together at the time. Uh, this detective fiction is absolutely about putting together a puzzle, and when it ends, if it's done right, the, all of those pieces should line up. And I think in the story, they do. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, there's so much though about the story that I, it just makes me want to like say we we owe so much to Poe in this area that he doesn't get proper due um, culturally because so much of this just rings of Sherlock Holmes and what we right. expect of Sherlock Holmes where there's the eccentric man. And I mean, it, it even has scenes where he does this peculiar ability to be able to like identify facts about people just by observing them. <laughs> the best is early yeah. on. So Dupin is the, is the detective, like the greatest detective that no one has heard of or, or doesn't remember that they've heard of. The other famous story that Dupin is in is the Purloin letter, the Purloin letter, yeah. which I think may be a more famous story. Would you say? Uh, I think more I, high school students have probably read the Purloin letter than have read Murders in the Rue Morgue. I don't know. Seems unforg- unforgivable if that were true, but I, I was I was more way more familiar with Purloin letter than I was with with this. But but even then, if you were to say who is Auguste Dupin, I don't know that anybody would say, oh yeah, he's the first detective in fiction ever. Yeah, and we get so many of the elements, like the, the Sherlock Holmes stories, the reason you have Watson there is so that he can explain things. This has the unknown, unnamed narrator, so uh-huh. that Dupin can explain everything to the reader, really. Uh, but it's also the narrator's writing the story, whereas in Sherlock Holmes, Watson is writing the story. Yep. Um, that's been, yeah, and he puts all the pieces down for us. We, I mean, and they're, they're, they're not actually police. They're outside of the police force and just consulting because of his brilliance, and the police force is kind of in, inept <laughs> at yep. times. And... Uh, there's this kind of simultaneous, uh, thankfulness, but also, you know, begrudgingness about <laughs> DuPont coming in and solving the mystery. Yep. And with all of which we see, you know, carried on most famously into Sherlock Holmes. And the thing that we also see that we, we've talked about just recently when we talked about Bones is this kind of troubled, doesn't fit into society, maybe may or may not be dealing with some sort of um you know condition that we could give a name to but this guy he he doesn't he just doesn't fit in he absolutely fits the mold of all of these new and people say oh what is it about what is it about um i mean what's going on in society today that makes people want to write stories about detectives that are you know have autism or some other uh, you know autistic tendencies and they're able to solve these incredible murders well part of the reason why is because the very first detective ever to do it was exactly like that and there's a great uh there's a great thing where um the narrator says we were you know kind of going about our business and we had to stop i can't remember now uh, we had to stop somewhere and like get something, and it was it's just out of the ordinary. And he says, uh, Dupin, he had a lot of kind of strange ticks, but and then he says this French phrase, "Je l'ai ménagé." Do you want and me to pronounce that for you, Todd? "Je l'ai ménagé." <laughs> so I happened to be reading this today while I was um, uh, next door to my colleague, who is a French professor, and I said, "What is je l'ai ménagé?" Uh, because he because he follows up in the text by saying there is really no great English equivalent for that term, and we actually looked it up and had a nice little conversation about it. And basically, what it means is this guy um, has all kinds of idiosyncrasies in his personality, and I manage them. Like that's my job is to manage his huh. idi- idiosyncratic personality. 
Um, and, and there are kind of two ways to look at it. One is to say, like, I just roll with it. And the other one is to say, like, I actually manage it, meaning I, I work hard to help him manage his in, in capability of dealing with society. And uh, I thought, man, that is really interesting that it shows up there and helps I to had, explain. I had no idea because I just skimmed over the French that appears. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it means. So which I think it's super cool. Yeah, Poe drops in French in this, and he does not offer translations at any point. <laughs> no, he actually says uh, there is really no English translation for that, so don't bother. So there's two ways to take it, Todd. Is you either just it that's the way it is, and I go with it, or I help make that still function. Well, the, so menager um, as a verb is. Um, it, it means to manage. Like it, it implies, uh, like actually, you know, doing stuff, being active in managing a situation. Um, and then there's a there's like a secondary definition of it um, that is not as common, which means that you just sort of like deal with it or roll with it or you kind of go with the flow of it. Um, this my colleague, she was convinced that it was saying, I, I deal with it. Like I, my job is to work, work with him and help him to sort of, uh, get along despite his strange behavior. So in, in one of those cases, it's the BBC Sherlock where Watson just deals with it. And one of them is elementary, which is another Sherlock Holmes where Watson helps him function. Yeah. I was thinking along the lines of a monk, and Monk has to have, like, an aide with him that helps him actually, <laughs> uh, like, um, just function in society. That's the, according to, you know, my my friend, that's that's the, what's implied in that phrase. Okay. It's like an aide. Right. Not like uh, Gus putting up with Sean's craziness on psych. No. <laughs> Far closer to uh, Monk's. A uh, little friend. Yeah. In uh, elementary, uh, Watson is actually, uh, starts out as his sober companion to help him stay off of drugs. Okay. Yeah. And I think in the in the BBC Sherlock, I think we see some of that in Watson. Definitely. Like Where? being, sort of being an active kind of, um, Sherlock, we, we need to do this, or we need to not do this, or you need to not do this, or do you realize, yeah. do you he, realize he, what a... Uh, a pain in the neck you are to the people who really care about you. Or he throws himself in front of Sherlock sometimes as like a buffer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. This, this interaction's not going well and it's not going to get any better. Let me step in. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought that was really interesting in that, in that one phrase that it tells us so much about this character and that many people that read this story aren't going to pick up on that, but that it's been picked up now in all of these contemporary shows and people say, um, you know, wh- why is why is this? <laughs> it's like, well, that's the model, which is, you know, one reason why. So one of these, I guess, peculiar aspects of Dupin, du- Dupin, du- uh, my students always called him Dupin, Dupin. <laughs> when we first start talking about it. Um, one of his, uh, his quirks is this analytic ability, which I've even... Um, there was a review I read for a show last season of television that it only it was only on for one season. It was canceled. It was called, 
oh dear, I've lost the name of it. It was called Forever. Um, but <laughs> there, the the critic said this is another character who does what I refer to as Sherlocking, which was being able to just look at someone and tell them, you know, tell their life story by details. And in this, like the camera zoomed in and you know did the breadcrumbs or the tan line or you know whatever it is, right, right, to explain it and. This, I guess it's, he called it Sherlocking, but maybe we should be calling it Duponning. Duponning. <laughs> Duponning. <laughs> because uh, that is one of the very specific traits that we get told. That This is almost like a game that he likes to play at times, is to just observe someone and then tell the unnamed narrator. And I think that his, his version of that is in some ways even more uh, impressive than Sherlock's, or at least it's different. In that Sherlock, it seems to me, uh, how do I say this? I'm thinking, I'm just thinking this through right now, but tell me if I'm, tell me if I'm off on this. So it seems to me that Sherlock, um, like if, if we're thinking about the, the new BBC Sherlock or, or even the original Sherlock, it seems to me that he's basing his observations on, on like physical objects in the, in the physical world. Whereas Dupin, the first time that he does this, he just, they're walking in silence. It's nighttime. They've been walking in silence for a while. And he turns to the narrator and says, you're right. That guy is short and he would be great in a variety show. And he goes, what? <laughs> Excuse yeah. me? Um, and it turns out that Dupin has been able to track this guy's thought process from the moment that they left their house for some amount of time and now and has been like having a silent conversation with him or or at least been able to track his own silent uh, thoughts and how this chain of thoughts where one random thought leads to another to another and by observing maybe two or three you know like a like a, a, a half smile or a glance at the star or something then he says and now i know exactly what you're thinking now because of a comment that you made an hour ago and I saw you half smile 20 minutes ago, and I saw you glance up at the sky 15 minutes ago, and I know what you're thinking. And it seems to me to be a difference uh, between the the way that he sees this and the way that Sherlock does. How does that sound to you? I agree. Uh, I, was, I found um, a description where it almost makes it, I guess, a little... It almost makes it feel almost supernatural, I guess, the... The way that it gets described, because he says, uh, the, the narrator says about Dupont, his manner at these moments uh, uh, was frigid and abstract, his eyes were vacant in expression, while his voice, usually a rich tenor, rose into a treble, which would have sounded petulant, but for the deliberateness and entire distinctiveness of the enunciation. Um, and he says, observing him in these moods, I often dwelt meditatively upon the old philosophy of the bipart soul and amused myself with the fancy of a double Dupin, the creative and the resolvent. So it's almost like there's another side of his personality is coming out in those moments. Yeah, it just it it implies an understanding of theory of mind, like being able to get inside the head of another person um, and 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 follow their thought process. That I think that some of the detectives that we see now. Um, Temperance Brennan or the BBC Sherlock, um, they struggle with that. I mean, that's part of the part of what makes them interesting is that they struggle to understand what goes on in people's heads, and they don't like to conjecture about those things. They just like to stick with the facts. But Dupin seems completely happy just riding along the chain of thoughts of this narrator, and doesn't seem to struggle with it at all, which I think is interesting. Yeah, and like you said, I think it is. Um 
a clear difference between a lot of what you have been mentioning as like the contemporary contemporary versions of the, of this sort of character. Yeah, it certainly strays far from the mold of um, like autism because by by definition, people with autism struggle with theory of the mind. So right. I, and I wouldn't I wouldn't classify him as having autism. Or, but it, it, we almost get so few details; it's hard to classify what. I mean, this the the only idiosyncrasy that gets really dwelt on is this ability to uh, to deduce or I guess induce from yeah. from what's around him, and uh, it, it, to a degree that almost seems superhuman. Yeah. Uh, what other characteristics of him are interesting? The way that he lives is just fascinating to me. <laughs> uh, the, the way it's described, like completely separated from society, like you said, already, uh, you know, only going out at night. He doesn't want companionship, and uh, maybe because of the way that his mind seems to be working, he doesn't need it because <laughs> he can imagine what a companion would be thinking <laughs> and, uh, and carry on that conversation himself. So it's he's just like. He comes across as just like a character that everyone in the city would kind of be aware of and wonder about and maybe gossip about, but that they wouldn't know anything about him. Yeah, so it's, it is really amazing. He says, It was at length arranged that we should live together during my stay in the city, and as my worldly circumstances were somewhat less embarrassed than his own, I was permitted to be at the expenses of renting and furnishing in a style which suited the rather fantastic gloom of our common temper, a time-eaten and grotesque mansion, long deserted through superstitions into which we did not inquire, and tottering to its fall in a retired and desolate portion of the Faubourg Saint-Germain. Had the routine of our life at this place been known to the world, we should have been regarded as madmen, although perhaps as madmen of a harmless nature. Our seclusion was perfect. We admitted no visitors. <laughs> Indeed, the locality of our retirement had been ca- carefully kept a secret from my own former associates, and it had been many years since Dupin had ceased to, known, to know or be known in Paris. We existed within ourselves alone. It's really interesting. Yeah, well, yeah, and yeah. It, it's almost like you, I'm, I want some gaps that are left in the story filled in. Like, how does he have a contact in the police department? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's willing to let him go in and observe the crime scene. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, and I wanted to say, I guess this is kind of straying a little from the character, but the way that so much of the information is given to us, the reader, through the newspaper articles is really an interesting narrative technique to me. Yes. Where we do, we get to this sequence of a couple days worth, like they, they're just saving the articles and reading them, of you know how the police investigation is going, and it's a, I mean this is, I think was probably the style of the time. The police reports are almost tabloidy and how they uh-huh. they discuss it, and um, you're a little surprised how much evidence is in there. <laughs> yeah. But again, I think this is dealing with the time. I I read that this was like the period when the first organized police forces were coming into existence ever. Uh huh. Uh, at this time, so so a lot of the rules and expectations that we have for police work, they just didn't exist. Um, and, and so maybe that's why he's able to go in and say, can I look at the crime scene? <laughs> and, <laughs> and they let him in. Yeah. Um, but he's able to get so much information out of those newspaper articles in a way that when he explains it, I guess this is part of that contract. Like, when he explains it, it makes sense to me as a reader. But when I was yes. reading it, I didn't make those conclusions. No, I was... I was... The first time I read this was, I think it was last year or two years ago, 
Um, and I remember feeling surprised and a little bit let down that it was an orangutan. <laughs> like, Urang really? Utang. Urang Utang. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, really? It really does come out of left field. Yeah. Um, but when you look at it, all the facts line up. And, and so, you know, I so, go with I- it. I mean, I went over it kind of quick in the summary, but one thing that comes up in the newspaper is that there's people from many different nationalities that are the witnesses that hear the screaming and try and break into the room. Um, and it said that everyone who, you know, whatever their native language was, they just said the male voice was speaking a different language, like maybe Russian. But then there's a Russian guy who says, nah, I think maybe it was Italian. And there's an Italian witness who says, I don't know. And they always say, <laughs> they always identify it as a language that they do not know. Yes, a language that they don't understand. Uh, and this is what leads him to conclude that it wasn't actually a language being spoken. Right. What do you think about this phrase here that says, um, the narrator says, let it not be supposed from what I've just said that I am detailing any mystery or penning any romance. What I have described in the Frenchman was merely the result of an excited or perhaps of a diseased intelligence. I will, with the, like the mystery of the romance, I think he's saying this isn't supernatural, even though it may seem that way. Uh huh. That there's, you know, there's, there's no powers beyond, uh, you know, fr- from the beyond that's helping him. But maybe the reason he can do what he does is because his mind isn't quite right. Yeah. I think it's really, there are two, there are two things about that that seem interesting to me. Um, first of all, Poe is absolutely a romantic writer. I mean, he come, he is the American romanticist, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and we've talked about romanticism before on this podcast about being all about emotion and mood and the sublime and kind of veering away from uh, logic and sort of like clean lines. And, you know, if you just use your brain, then you can figure everything out. And, and it's so interesting to me that detective fiction comes out of romanticism. Right. Uh, a genre that seems to to celebrate so much the mind and logic uh, comes out of this period in which it's all about mood and it's all about a feeling and it's all I mean in some ways it is all about the supernatural and you know weird stuff happening in the telltale heart and the you know the dead bodies in the in the coffin trying to scratch their way out and. I just think it's fascinating so, that this genre, that this genre comes out of that uh, era. I mean, it even gets more interesting because I mean, several decades on, the most famous example of this is Sherlock Holmes. We've talked about it a lot, right? But Arthur Conan Doyle was a firm believer in the occult uh-huh. and the fantastic, and uh, he was always trying to prove the existence of fairies and uh, you know, the validity of seances and all uh-huh. these other things. And he created Sherlock Holmes, who is the icon of this, you know, rational deduction. Yeah. So, so what do you make of that? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And I've thought about it before and I've never been able to find it, you know, to, to reach a satisfactory conclusion. So, uh, I mean, in some ways, particularly with more with Doyle, I could almost read Sherlock Holmes and how, uh, he doesn't fit in and all those other things as a criticism of the hyper rational mind. Uh huh. But I, I don't get that from all the stories. It's just in some of them. Do I do I start to feel that way when I read Sherlock Holmes? So 
And, and to me, that would make sense if that was what Arthur Conan Doyle was trying to do was to do this criticism, but it kind of got away from him. <laughs> and, <laughs> and people took the wrong message. Kind of like uh, I, I've heard uh, that uh, some people say that uh, all the stock market issues and everything is from people watching the movie Wall Street and taking the completely wrong message from it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I- you know, you know, miss, missing the mark of criticism and, and just embracing what is supposed to have been critiqued. But I don't know that Sherlock Holmes fully reads that way as a critique through all of it. So I'd have to read more and, and look at that more specifically. Do you have any insights? Well, I just, the fascination with the body, like the dead body. Yes. And I mean, that when they, when they look at the, at the headline on the thing, it says extraordinary murders. And that is way romantic, right? Yeah, that, that we have this fascination with death, and and the macabre. I mean, the 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 there exists a theory that says that murder is the greatest form of art. And I know that this is really <laughs> this is really kind of messed up, uh, but there are people who say that murder is the greatest form of art. If we take as as art the definition as the definition of art being uh, some. Um, let's see, how would we, it would be something like some sort of act that's, like going, a physical to elicit act that's going to elicit an emotional, emotional response, response, right? Yeah. Uh, and then in, if, if that's the definition that we take, then murder is the, the greatest work of art because it elicits the greatest emotional response in, in people. And that falls squarely in the tradition of romanticism, eliciting the greatest emotional response possible. And so rather than going out and killing people, uh, we have romantic writer Poe in this case, describing in vivid detail, uh, a dead body to us. And it seems to me that solving the crime, I don't know if it's like, ancillary to that or secondary to that but yeah, I, but I the mean, focus I, of the story for so long he he goes he takes so many pains <laughs> to describe in such detail these bodies yeah this is not a hemingway-esque short story <laughs> it's <laughs> sparse words the you know the minimum if you can cut a word cut it he he throws in a lot of adjectives yeah. uh in that description and i think this still has that romantic feel of so much of what you come away with the story is not about the logic of the murder. It is about the atmosphere and the mood that it created as you read it. Yeah. It says in the, in the, in the newspaper article, uh, the party spread themselves and hurried from room to room upon arriving at a large back chamber in the fourth story, the door of which had been found locked and the key inside was forced open. A spectacle presented itself, which struck everyone present, not less with horror than with astonishment. And this is before they've pulled a body out of the chimney. Yeah. <laughs> and they come in and the room's been, the room's been tossed and there's blood all over the place. And, yeah. um, there's hair that's been, you know, pulled out at its roots and, 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 and it, and it, it creates in them a feeling both of horror and astonishment. And he calls it a spectacle. I mean, that, that feeling of horror and astonishment, that's the sublime, which is, you know, the goal of a lot of romantic art is to elicit the, sub, you know, the feeling of the sublime, this uh, simultaneous awe and terror um, at what you're beholding. 
And I mean, Poe, he's kind of interesting because we said, you said he's the primary romantic and there's one really interesting way in which he swerves completely away from the romantics. And that is the romantics were always uh, promoting the idea of the, the tortured artist who in a moment of inspiration, like produces these stories that, you know, she's welling up within them. And he wrote a uh, theory of composition in which he laid out like how much work and revision should be done <laughs> on anything <laughs> before it gets, pu- it gets published that you need to choose every word. And he, like, he had all these guidelines uh, like he felt strongly, he he wrote I think only one novel, and he, maybe he had an unfinished novel when he died. But he felt strongly that a good work of fiction should be consumed in one sitting, so that's why he wrote short stories. Um, and he went in uh, to a lot of detail about what a good work of fiction should elicit from the reader in terms of an effect on the mind. And it's you know it's all you know romantic ideas, but he's going into this kind of uh, much more rigid and uh, logical way of trying to produce that within a reader than what most romantics claimed to be their, their style in, uh-huh. in, in doing their writing. And so this kind of has a blend of that, you know, the logic of Dupont, but then all those newspaper scenes. And then, as you said, like the, the orangutan kind of comes out <laughs> of left field. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's not the most easily deduced mystery. Uh, and that's the violation of that unspoken contract that some people criticize this for. Whereas like when I think back on this, I think about, you know, the, the surprise I felt with the revelation of the orangutan. I think about the way that they described the orangutan going into the room and having the razor, yeah. and, you know, all those other things and the mood that that creates not necessarily, uh, you know, when, when I think about a Sherlock story, I think about Sherlock's description of every step he took to solve the crime. And we don't necessarily get that from Dupin. Like, you know, what happened within his head, but it's not laid bare the way Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, well, you do. see him. They get in the room, and he kind of shuffles around the room, and he checks a bunch of stuff. But we don't get to see that like we do in film, where uh, I mean, they, in in film or television, you can do interesting things uh, with point of view shots, for example, to let the reader know what the detective is focusing on. And in here, we don't get any of that. He just he just shuffles around right. the room, and then he says, "Okay, I've got it," and then. And then he tells us, this is what I saw as I shuffled around the room, which is not exactly the same. There's one other thing about Dupin that I think is interesting that ties into this conversation. Um, and he says, an inquiry will afford us amusement. And I think there's something really important in this this detective uh, or police consultant <laughs> uh, and <laughs> others that we see um, – and it has to do with the this uh, ability to be amused by the horrific. The, there's the, he's amused by this. I mean, he he it's enjoyable for him. And uh, I think one way to differentiate between, as you're looking at all 192 <laughs> police procedurals, <laughs> is to see these detectives and see how much amusement they get out of their job. Um, so like on the one extreme, you would see like Sean Spencer and psych who absolutely loves, <laughs> absolutely loves what he does. He knows that he's good at it and he goes in, he's just giddy about it. Or, um, castle is another one where he will, can get so excited about solving a murder. Um, and Sherlock, depending on the, cr- uh, on the crime can also be really amused. The, the counter to this is somebody like, um, w- Kurt Wallander in, or, uh, yeah, the the one that are the kind yes. of Brana, right? The, or there's um, uh, Broadchurch, the BBC oh miniseries. right, which I have not seen. Way. It's but David Tennant's the detective, and he is just 
torn up and like can barely function because he's trying to solve right. the murder of a child. <laughs> and it's, you know, he's, it's just, he's so angst ridden, uh, about what his job is and what it is that he has to deal with every day that that's why he can't function more so than idiosyncrasy. And that's exactly how Wallander is. He just is so beat up about what he has to do every day. Um, that, yeah, that that's what causes him to, to struggle so much with his relationships and his, you know, his family and his colleagues and his, you know, addictions. And <laughs> it all goes back to the fact that he hates his job and yet he feels, he feels compelled to do it because he knows that he's good at it. Um, and it's the only, it's the only thing that he knows how to do. Uh, but I think that it's, it says something really interesting about a character who can be amused in the face of this kind of horror. Well, and I, I think the other interesting thing is the next step that, you know, we consume these stories yes. for entertainment. So we as an audience are amused, maybe not haha, but, you know, this is a diversion that we choose. I, as our producer Andrew said, it's one of the most <laughs> prolific genres on television is, you know, the crime procedural. procedural and these stories in, in literature, I mean, in every in every single medium of, of narrative, these kinds of stories are extremely popular. And so maybe when we hear Dupont saying that, oh, this is going to provide some good amusement, we're like, well, that's a little yes, twisted. exactly. But then we're, we're reading it. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it's, we, we have that safe, the, the you know, the safety barrier of uh, right. fiction is, um, you know, why we don't feel that it's, you know, twisted for us to take, uh, pleasure in these kinds of stories, but I think Poe may be poking at that idea a right, little bit, <laughs> particularly in, in when he was, cause he worked in newspapers and magazines. And so he wrote tabloid mm-hmm. type news stories, uh, you know, to be consumed by the public, both as news and as yeah. entertainment. So I think he's poking some of that at that. It's watching gladiator and waving your finger at the ancient Romans and saying, Oh, you horrible people! You are so uh, that, that you could possibly be entertained by violence. Yeah, or, or, or I think we talked about some of this in the Hunger yes, Games. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> like the, this is, uh, I felt even more so for the film than for the the novel. This is gonna be a really fine line to watch to criticize consuming this as entertainment, even as it is being sold That's purely, purely as, as entertainment. entertainment. Yes, <laughs> uh, I think it's a really important uh, element to this whole thing. And, and again, well, into that genre, to understanding or, or, or discussing this genre, if not an understanding, at least it's a starting point for discussion. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Having. And again, we look back at this story as the foundation for that, that conversation in this genre, at least. And I think, I mean, going back to that idea of the sublime, one reason Poe gives us so many of those descriptions is the whole point of the sublime is that you experience terror from safety. Yes. You, you know, that, that, I, I mean, in some ways, I guess it, it makes me think of Neil Gaiman's description from when we talked about the graveyard book of, you know, literature and fiction can kind of give us emotional inoculations for life. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you can experience some emotions like horror, but knowing that you're safe at the same time, and maybe it'll make you be able to better function when life throws you those curveballs that, that otherwise you would be completely unprepared for. Maybe you're a little bit prepared for yeah. it because, because of fiction. I mean, I've had this own thought in in my own mind, and my wife will say to me, "Why do you like these detective shows? Because they're kind of dark, and they're not really happy, <laughs> and 
and I'm like, I, I don't really know. I don't really know why, but there's something that, that makes me feel drawn to them. And I think that some of it has to do with, um, eliciting those emotions in an environment that is safe. Right. Where we allow ourselves, uh, the knowledge that there's, you know, there's separation. These are actors. Um, as much as we talk about entertainment and immersiveness and, you know, floating through uh, and letting it wash over us, I think we, we need that buffer to be able to enjoy a lot of the entertainment. That's there's a tiny, there has to be a tiny thread in the back of your mind that tells you this is not real. Right. I mean, if, Mm -hmm. if, if it, if there weren't, if it, if it were the complete suspension of disbelief, if it were a completely immersive experience, nobody would do it. Right. Right. I mean, we, we, we love, and people, people who love horror stories, they love them because of the feelings that they elicit in them. Uh, but nobody would go and watch a horror film if there were not that safety valve in the back of their mind that lets them know this is not real. Right? I mean, you wouldn't go uh, <laughs> or to a haunted house. Why? Well, I, I, that's one of those interesting because there are those who like genuinely believe in hauntings and will seek those out too. Yeah. But do you think that I those people believe They're, that they could be killed by those ghosts? I don't know. I'm not one of those people. <laughs> Life is a potpourri. There's a lot of people out there. There are. It seems... <laughs> Lots of points of views. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, yeah. I don't know. We're in, like, foreign, we, foreign we waters have, for me. I guess it's about that point in the uh, podcast where we recognize that we've forgotten what topic we're talking about. <laughs> no, I think that's a really interesting thought, at least, to... Um, because there's also, I mean, there are thrill seekers who you know, climb Mount Everest knowing full well that they could not come back. Yeah, or um, that video that was going around for a while of urban, like, uh, kids who climbed to the top of a skyscraper and were walking around without any harnesses or anything, like, dangling themselves off the set, <laughs> the edge. <laughs> and, and you know, just literally their fingers are all that's between them and absolute uh, certain death. Yeah, and the video went viral because people could watch it and I guess feel the safety of that's yes. not me, <laughs> but still have kind of this fear for those people who are doing it. And, you know, that's removing that level of fiction. Yeah. Uh, and, and still that video went viral and got millions of views. So I, I think, I guess part of what I'm saying is I think that there's a difference between fiction and, and real thrill seeking. And that fiction is a step removed from that where you have, when you're involved in a fictional setting, uh, there is the understanding that this is fiction. It's not real. It might be really scary and it might feel very immersive, but in the end, there's something in the back of your mind that knows this is, this is make believe. Uh, and it's a different, uh, care. It's a different kind of experience to do real thrill seeking where, you know, this is not pretend. This is not make believe, and I could die right now. And I think it's a far smaller subset of society that engages in those <laughs> kinds of activities. I agree with that. Well, Whew. on that note, <laughs> uh, just remember if you took anything from this podcast, that Edgar Allan Poe had a nemesis named Rufus Griswold. <laughs> I have one other thing. I was just searching in the recesses of my mind, wondering if there is a film version of this. There are several. No, I'm. 
And one of them has a crazy cast. Did you come across the one that 1986, has a crazy cast? 1986, Val Kilmer, George C. Scott, and Rebecca De Mornay. And Ian McShane. Ian McShane. <laughs> oh, I didn't see that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, before we started recording, I was telling our producer, Andrew, about that. And we were both like, how did that cast get together? That's amazing. How do we not know about this film? Oh, the other thing that I want to say, uh, you know, I've had some fun pronouncing some words this episode. Uh we, we mentioned Sherlocking earlier. Do you know what Poe referred to his uh, Dupont's method of deduction? Ratiocination? Perhaps ratiocination? Perhaps rationization? Yeah, in there actually is a Spanish word, raciocinio, which is and I, yeah, something close to that. He, he was borrowing from the French when he, yeah. when he made up that I English like word. I Ratiocinio. Kind of rational thought yes. process. Raciocinio. So there's one final pronunciation for you, listeners. Todd, any final thoughts on Dupont? Yes, I think that he's fascinating and absolutely qualifies as a great character and a great story. And I really would recommend to our listeners, if you have not read this, go give it a read. It's really enjoyable. Or the purloined letter. Or the purloined letter. Or maybe some other post story that maybe have, you know, scarred me for life. (laughs) Ask Amontillado. Okay. That wraps up this episode. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes and leave us a review. Uh, You don't even have to make a comment. You just go click on the stars, and that will help our ratings in iTunes. Uh, Links to everything that we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com, and you can also find a list of all of our previous shows there. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at protagonistpod, uh, at Todd K. Mack, at Jay Dorowski, and our producer Andrew is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And please go like our Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. If you do that, you'll see anytime that we uh, post a new link to a new episode, you'll be able to find it there. And if you want to buy a topic for us to discuss or just support us with a financial donation, you can click on the support link on our homepage or go to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening. And we'll be back again next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. So long. Any final thoughts on Dupont, Todd? No, I think that he's a... uh, Well, okay, I won't say no and then say a bunch of stuff. I will just say... (laughs) I think he's... Todd. Hold on.